Welcome to NHA City Spotlight. It's our podcast from the New Hampshire Association for Supervision and Curriculum Development. My name is Bill Carosa, Executive Director. Um, today's show is sponsored by Lexia Core 5. You'll hear more about Lexia later on in the show. You can also visit them at lexialearning.com slash Core 5. We're pretty excited to have one of the leading worldwide math educators live with us next week, next Tuesday and Wednesday afternoon, November 21 and 22. Yes, just before you go on Thanksgiving break. Uh, from 4 to 5.30 p.m. both days, we have uh, Peter Lizardall, who, by the way, was our podcast guest on November 3rd. He's going to be presenting his breakthrough strategies on building Thinking Classrooms K-12. It's part of our math series in cooperation with the New Hampshire Teachers of Mathematics. You can register for Peter, as well as our K-8 Math Conference uh, coming up March 22nd with uh, Steve Linewan, Kristen Hilty, Graham Fletcher, Carolyn Worcester, and Kevin Mahoney. Register for one or both of these events and get a discount if you do both at NH. ASCD.org. I should also mention that coming up also this month, the 37th annual Krista McAuliffe Transforming Teaching and Technology Conference is going to be Monday, November 27th. By the way, our guest today is going to be there, I think, right? As I, I see her over Zoom, she is. Can't wait. Again, it's um, November 27th through Thursday, November 30th. And for more information, go to nhcmtc.com. Uh, the conference is produced by uh, NISTI. Uh, NHSAA, the Super 10 Association, and uh, supported by us at NHASCD, the Principal Association, and also COSIN. Okay, if you could guess from the few seconds of of uh, her voice, uh, our guest today is New Hampshire educator Liz Cannon. She was last year's recipient of the Krista McAuliffe sabbatical as the founder and owner of Literacy Leaders NH, LLC, providing support to educators throughout the state, uh, utilizing the science of reading. Uh, Liz has worked as a reading and writing specialist for the last, I think, 13 years. With the Hopkins, 14, now. 14, good yeah, Lord. Yeah, I know. 14 years with the Hopkins School District and uh, has been an elementary teacher in New Hampshire and California. Someday she'll tell her story on the podcast about her Jeopardy time, <laughs> she and John. Uh, Liz is also in the doctoral program at uh, Southern New Hampshire University. She has two children, both in high school, and her husband, John Cannon, teaches at Bow High. I got to mention, you may know him because he also hosts Grand Estate Challenge on New Hampshire PBS. Full disclosure, uh, Liz was my journalist son's second grade teacher, and Liz and I worked together for a dozen years, I guess maybe 11 years. If you're 13, must be 11. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, Liz was our guest over a year ago on our October 5th, 2022 episode when she was just starting her sabbatical. I'm also proud to say, and I had nothing to do with it, seriously, Liz is now a member of our NHASED board, so we're real proud about that. And she'll be joining us along with other uh, new members, which you'll hear about, by the way, uh, probably in the December newsletter, maybe this month. We'll see. Hi, Liz. How you doing? Hi, I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. good. Well, you know, it's been a few months since you've completed your sabbatical. You and I have talked, but you haven't told uh, the story on the podcast. What What were your big takeaways from the past school year? I know you really enjoyed your time traveling all over the state, racking up lots of miles on that car of yours. <laughs> yeah, it was a great experience. It's hard to believe that it was like over a year ago that we were yeah. on the podcast together but right. uh it was an amazing opportunity for a variety of reasons i think you know a sabbatical is just a great opportunity to kind of get a break from your routine um kind of get outside with your bubble and you know just to have the kind of intellectual space to really dive into whatever project is you're working on for me that's literacy and um, 
also just being able to communicate and work with educators all over the state, I still feel like I get the most um, benefit from working in the most PD from working with other educators and learn so much from them. Um, so that was just a really exciting opportunity to be able to kind of take advantage of. And then along the way, there were other surprises too about things that, you know, I didn't know that I'd be interested or I didn't know that I'd find out about, you know, learning about the science of reading and then kind of stumble on to cognitive science about the science of learning and, you know, basic strategies that can help us learn better. Um, you know, using retrieval practice helps retain things for students or interleaving and having spaced practice for students. Um, so I found myself interested in that. And also, dealing um, not just with teachers, but also at the administrative level was really, um, it was a really great experience to work with some of the curriculum directors I worked with. Um, also surprising to see that there's not a lot of literacy experts kind of at that administrative level. Um, there's a lot of high schools that have like a dean of, you know, a subject area or things like that, but you don't usually find it at K-8. Um, there's more like a K-12 curriculum person, all areas. Um, so that was also an interesting thing to kind of see as you travel the state. Some of the bigger districts definitely have it, but not all of them. Yeah. And we talked during the past year, so I, I sort of know your experience, many of your experiences, but I also know that a year is just a year. How in the world do you continue the momentum of the things you were able to do over the past year? Yeah. It, I mean, it is hard, you know, you go back to the, your regular job and you have to carve out the time to do it. Um, but I'm really committed to still keeping that communication line open with other literacy leaders in the state. Um, we've already started a PL, PLN, Professional yeah. Learning Network, and we had our first meeting, went really well. Um, so I'm excited about that. We're going to have monthly meetings and kind of try to keep some lines of communication and sharing knowledge open with um, literacy leaders in the state. And then also, you know, continuing to provide research and materials and support through other online platforms that I created during the sabbatical um, for teachers, but also for parents. Um, that's another kind of stakeholder that I've worked a lot with in the last few months. Um, and so just trying to, you know, keep up on those things and keep up on my own research as well. Yeah, because you're working on a doctorate too. You, yeah, yeah, you, it takes up some time. <laughs> it, it does. Yeah, yeah, that was. It's an experience. I'm it sure. We'll talk more about that. Yeah, it's great. Now, when you work with, it must be dozens of schools you worked with, a, a ton of them anyway. What trends did you see, and are you still seeing, uh, in terms of literacy and just school in general? I guess. Yeah, I I would say generally, there's you know, teachers are tired, and rightfully so. Yeah. Um, there, there's definitely a high level of burnout right now. Um, literacy specifically, uh, there's a there's a high amount of angst. There's also excitement, you know, from some teachers about the changes and the new things. There's some angst in a lot of places. Um, I'm not sure that people always understand what a huge shift this is for educators to be making while maintaining, you know, everyday classroom. Um, teaching, community building, all the other things that they would do as part of their job. Um, so there's definitely some anxiety around that. And, and there's definitely um, a, a knowledge that shifts need to be made. And so what I saw happening in a lot of places that certain materials were being taken away 
because they were not best practice, but there wasn't always things replacing those materials and teachers were kind of left wondering what they were supposed to be doing. So, you know, there's more of a, there's kind of a reactive thing going on where we need to be a little bit more proactive, it feels like. Um, so yeah, I definitely, I definitely noticed that anxiety and stress that it caused teachers, but there's also a great number of teachers all over the state that are engaging in the letters training and there's yeah. some good momentum building around that in some districts. And so that was really great to see. Um, and then the, I guess the other big thing, and this was a little bit of a surprise for me, I've always been an early elementary person, um, was kind of the interest I found in middle and high school um, and the kids that are still struggling when they get to middle and high school and what supports or lack of supports are there for them, um, either through kind of an MTSS system or even if they have uh, an IEP a lot of times the supports get put around helping them access the curriculum, um, you know, using different software adaptive things like that, which is very important. We want them to keep doing that. But what happens then is like the secondary piece of filling in the skill gaps doesn't always seem to be happening. And that's how we end up with kids, you know, graduating high school who are not literate. So that that middle school and high school piece, I found myself interested in much more than I, I realized I would be. And that was just kind of through experiencing it and seeing it lived. Well, and, and living with a high school teacher, too, has to have some yeah. effect on that. Yeah. And, and, you know, he's he's a history teacher, but they teach humanities. So he's always right. had a piece in that. But, you know, also realizing just we can only do what we know and, and they don't always have that training to know to know what to do with those kids who's writing the paper and they're really great in class and they're great in conversation, but their written paper is kind of a hot mess. Like that should be a red flag to look a little bit deeper, but there's not always that person to even go to, to ask. Like a lot of high schools don't even have a reading or a writing specialist there. Sure. So there's a, there's kind of a, a missing link in the chain there for those older yeah. kids. I feel like. To follow up on the massive change, the science of reading and just new reading, whether it's a program or new ideas brings. I, I was teaching my class, the one you actually spoke to. And after class, I was talking to a couple of colleagues in the department. And when we talk about things like science of reading or UDL, these sophomores go, well, or, and I think juniors and seniors say, well, of course, that's just the way it, it should be. They're growing up with that. But we have to have some compassion for the even 30-somethings and above mm -hmm who thought that wasn't the way we were supposed to teach reading. And now we're saying different things. And of course, my favorite, I think it's actually one of your mottos is when you know better, do better. Mm -hmm. But doing better doesn't happen overnight. Right. Um, yeah, that's actually a quote from uh, Maya Angelou, one of my favorites. So I like that one. And um, and I, I talk about that a lot with teachers when I was working with them throughout the year, and I still do now, about giving yourself grace and and knowing that you can only do the best of what you know um and then you know it's our job to help teachers and to educate teachers to give them the information they need to then do better um so it's it's tricky you know it's tricky because teachers who i would consider you know expert teachers like i look up to and have worked with and have known for years are stuck in a tricky place now to really rework their practice. 
Um, but I'm super proud of a lot of teachers too, for being open to do it. Like it's uncomfortable, you know, yeah. it, it can be anxiety producing, but to ask the questions and, and to have the conversations, that's how we move the needle. We'll talk more about the sabbatical in particular when we return, but I want to mention that uh, New Hampshire AACD Spotlight is sponsored today by Lexia Core 5. What if helping your child led to helping people worldwide? And that's what happened to Bob Lemire, whose love for his son would transform the lives of learners with dyslexia forever. After witnessing his son's reading struggles, Bob contacted his longtime friend, neurologist Edwin Cole. Bob learned that his son was developmentally dyslexic, and upon seeing his child's remarkable transformation thanks to science-based literacy instruction, he wanted to bring his life-changing resource to everyone. So he and Dr. Cole contacted technology expert Dr. Meeks, and Lexia was born. Now teachers across the United States have the tools and training to provide effective and inclusive literacy instruction that helps students thrive. And with New Hampshire's recent passage of HB 377 on August 1, 2023, both public and charter school districts can use Lexia Core 5 reading to create individualized learning paths that support students of all abilities and help educators meet the new requirements. Learn more about Core 5 by visiting lexialearning.com slash Core 5. And thanks to Lexia for sponsoring this episode of New Hampshire ASCD Spotlight. Appropriate, we're talking about Lexia and uh, literacy today, Liz. Hey, uh, one of the, I think it's one of the great honors, and I've known a couple now that have won the, or awarded the Krista McAuliffe sabbatical. It really is one of the, the top honors in New Hampshire, would you recommend it um, to others? the The experience of applying and and obviously experiencing <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely. It was like I said, an amazing experience. Um, you know, it's it's work. Like you you need to you need to have a plan, and it needs to be well spelled out, and you need to have a a plan to implement it. And it's it, it's a process. It's an application process that you know does require a lot of work, but it's well worth it. Um, if you receive the sabbatical and you you get that year to really delve into your passion, um, build your practice, and kind of open your horizons about you know what your next steps are going to be. So yeah, it's it, and it's just an incredible honor. And you know, I just think about Krista and how you know proud she would be to know that other educators were following in her footsteps. Oh, totally. She was a, a wonderful, wonderful person. No yeah. doubt about it. Where, where do they go? Where's the website? It's New Hampshire Charitable Foundation, I guess, yes. actually sponsors yep. it, right? Yep. Yeah. Okay. So yep. we'll put that as they like, as I love to say on a podcast, we'll put that link in the show notes. There we go. One of those lines you hear on all podcasts. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't, we didn't write this down as a question and you sort of talked about it, but what are some of the many things you learned about yourself during the past year? Again, that's a, another reason why people should do things like sabbaticals. Right. Um, you know, I think on one hand, like a sabbatical for me, I, I enjoy time on my own. So the time in being able to structure my own time, like I do well with that. I'm able to kind of structure what I'm going to do and set goals for myself and keep myself on track. Um, you know, one of the more challenging things is that you you have to kind of network a little bit to just try to get into schools and to try to get people, you know, to present and to get people involved in your project. Um, you know, and I, I, I can do that, but there's a reason I'm not a salesperson. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's a reason I'm a teacher. So that was a little bit more of a challenging piece for me, for sure. Um, not, not one that I've enjoyed quite as much. Um, but once I, 
made those connections and was able to get in that that was really it made it worth it for sure so you and i have lived through the the reading wars maybe twice now in a <laughs> sense right i mean you were oh, yeah. pretty young during the 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 first i guess you can almost call it the first phase um, well they have a long storied history that we could go back to the 1800s if you really wanted to so <laughs> yes I, I kind of forgot about that and i read that the other day in, in prepping for this that yeah going on forever and maybe yep. it, to some extent it will forever as well i kind of thought 2000 ish when the reading panel report came out that maybe we were going getting over the hump a little bit but i i'm not really sure we are it's mm. fine i did something kind of funky i i asked google the generative ai which i i don't think everybody has it i said yes to it at one point i don't know whatever and <laughs> uh, just about the reading wars and what was interesting is it came up with you know google has questions after they give you information yeah. and the three questions were what is clay's theory of reading must be mari clay's mm-hmm. theory of reading what is the podcast against lucy calkins mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. pushing the science of reading so in a funky way, this is probably, although I don't think p- most people know who Marie Clay is. I mean, educators might, but, but right. probably not many. Right. Certainly the average public doesn't, but certainly Lucy's podcast, that, that's uh, like legendary now. And of course, just the whole science of reading um, concept. Where are we? And, and what did you learn about, I hate to even call it the reading wars, the reading conflict that's going on. <laughs> what did you learn in the, in the past year or so from that? Where are we at? I think I learned complexity. I think we're we're too quick to try to boil things down and um, unfortunately mirror maybe like our political climate in the yeah. in our culture right now in that way. Um, but there's definitely you know there's things to be learned and there's changes to be made for sure. Um, I think that. I, I like to stay away from things like the reading wars or even language like that because it just becomes divisive and it, it doesn't help us move forward. And what kids need from us is to move forward because we're here for them and we're here to help them be more successful. So there's actually a group, they call themselves um, the Reading Peaceniks. Uh, they wrote a piece, it's uh, it's on Reading Rockets about early literacy and it was, um, authors and then 25 other nationally recognized colleagues kind of uh, signed on to it all in agree green that you know these are best practices this is what you should be looking for in your classroom and the idea you know they put a little kind of blurb in it and identified themselves as the, as the reading peaceniks which i thought was nice and they said the authors of this article are a group of researchers and practitioners who are looking to end the divisiveness of the reading wars and help children learn to read and write with confidence and pleasure. And I was like, I, re- I remember reading it and just being like, yes, like that's that's what I'm here for. That's what I want to do. I, I'm not here to um, it, to argue over it. You know, some people get really caught up in that piece of things. Um, that being said, you know, I came into the profession in 2000, it, you know, it was right as the National Reading Panel was coming out. And I learned a little about it in 2001 I was in grad school not a ton um you know but that's where we get the five pillars kind of from and you know we knew we needed this kind of balance of those five pieces of literacy but oh man those pillars have lots of roots and they're very intertwined and it's so much more complex than I ever truly understood before um 
And, you know, I, I've kind of been on this journey on my own for a few years before my sabbatical even, and, and just really understanding um, the, the what, the why behind things, you know, watching kids do things and finally understanding why that's happening so that I feel like I'm in a better place to be able to help them is so rewarding. Um, And I think, you know, what I often say to other educators is, if, if you believe in the science of reading, that means you believe in science. And if you believe in science, that means you're, you're committing to constantly being open to new thoughts and changing your practice based on new evidence. Because that's what science is. We're constantly revisiting, looking at new ideas, using, trying new research, getting the evidence and putting it into practice. So, you know, I don't really like to stick my flag in any one camp it's more like what's best for kids what does the research say what am I what does my data say from the students I'm working with and then what am I going to do with them and is it going to show that I'm helping them move forward and you like the word science I think because it maybe it helps us deal with that pendulum swing which has really become a cliche in our field pretty much yeah I mean I I agree and I you know I shy away from that because people will often claim that that's what science of reading is but i do acknowledge as an educator of over 20 years like we do definitely have pendulum swings and it can be frustrating as an educator you know um to just feel like it's just the same old thing here we go again now we're going to do this and we're going to swing back and um but i do think that that term science indicates that we're kind of committing to being scholar practitioners, right? Like we're going to commit to research, understanding what the good research is. That's another piece is, you know, in education, publishers will just stamp on, you know, when the Common Core came out, everybody just Common Core aligned. And now, you know, buyer beware, there's reading programs out there and they're just stamping on science of reading. But you have to really know yourself what to look for and, and what really means that it is evidence aligned, you know, did that company just do their own research on their own product? Um, And that, and that's part of the reason why I, you know, was a a little disillusioned with not having more literacy experts at that admin level, because I would see that as part of that job is understanding how to read the research and really kind of vetting it to know that you're getting, getting best practices in there. And I think one of the biggest things I've learned in the last few years is just to ask why more not in an aggressive or combative way, but to better understand and not just accept what is being given to me always. So the people who listen to this podcast come from all different walks of educational life. If you could speak first to administrators and maybe to teachers after that, what should administrators know about, well, the science of reading about literacy in 2023? Who should they be following? What should they be reading? Obviously, and you know, I come from an admin background. I, I am not a literacy expert by any means. So I need to know if I was a principal again, what should I know? What should I read? And, you know, there are books out there that say whatever principal should know about blah, blah, blah. Right. The world of literacy is changing so fast. What do you say? So, I mean, I guess I would say to admin that if you don't have a district in which you have that ability to have an, a literacy expert or, or yeah. you know, director, that you need to find your literacy experts within your district. So, you know, more often than not, they're there. Um, They're often reading specialists, but they don't have to be. They could be a classroom teacher. They could be a special educator. You know, you never know where people's passions lie. Um, And I would also say that, 
you need to do some training, at least some basic training. Letters is fantastic. Um, it's a, it is a lot. And there is an administrative level of letters, which is great because it's really a lot about change leadership, which is necessary to kind of do this. Um, but you need to understand the actual like logistics of what's going on in classrooms and what kids are doing. Even just go into classrooms and spend some time watching teachers teach, you know, asking questions, asking those whys. Um, there's a lot of great researchers I tend to favor. I, I'm fascinated by the, you know, cognitive scientists who share the brain research and all of that. And it has big implications for our teaching. And I, I find it very interesting, but I do tend to flock to the more practitioner researchers who have been teachers who have been in the field and are helping to connect those two things. Um, so Kareem Weaver is, I'm a big fan of, um, he owns Fulcrum, which is out in Oakland, California, and Fulcrum stands for full and complete reading is a universal mandate. Um, and he is a big advocate of literacy as a civil right, and he'll call it the civil right of our time. And I largely agree with him on that. And um, Jan Hasbrook is another favorite of mine. She was one of the original creators of the what we refer to as the ORF, which is the Oral Reading Fluency Test. Um, and she and Jerry Tyndall were original creators of that. She was a literacy coach and a literacy specialist for 15 years before that. And so there's a great episode of um, Amplify Science of Reading's podcast with her where she talks about that process and how the first time she saw it, she said, how can this possibly tell me anything about what a kid is doing when they read? And the process she kind of went through to wrap her head around that was similar to what I went through. And I could identify with her a lot on that. So there's podcasts are another thing. There's some really, really great podcasts out there. And it's a great way to get information while you're walking the dog or driving to school or whatever it is. I not just host a podcast. I <laughs> listen to a ton of them. Yeah. Uh, and Amplify is one that I really enjoy. And it's not always getting into the science of reading. Sometimes it, it they had Doug Reeves on there at one point yep. talking about some just some great issues, which I really enjoyed. So it, it it's a broad well done podcast. It really is because yes, not all podcasts out there are well done, but right. uh, even if they're informational. All right, let's spend a few minutes talking about the resources you've developed that are still going on. Let's push um, your stuff a little bit, and especially you know for New Hampshire educators. Sure. So there's a couple different ones. Um, first of all, there's a Facebook group. Uh, so if you're on Facebook, it's a private group, but you can just search for Literacy Leaders NH and ask to join, there's a few questions and then you're a part of the group. Um, I often share um, articles, research, sometimes things that I've made recently, it was conference, conference time in a lot of um, districts. So I created kind of a two page thing um, explaining the ORF assessment and why we give it and that teachers could I, help both teachers, but also if they wanted to share it with parents would be helpful for parents in understanding that. So sometimes I'll post up things like that with a new dyslexia screening law. I had tried to share some resources for that as well. So I tend to post things to Facebook a lot because they're easy to kind of grab for people to grab and use. Um, I do have an Instagram page as well, a little harder to grab and use or, you know, connect links on Instagram. Um, and then a blog, it's uh, literacyleadersnh at uh, dot blogspot. And um, 
and then a Google site. So it's sites.google.com and it's literacy leaders NH. Yeah. And that has a lot of links to different resources on it as well. And once again, all those links, it's going to be a very long list of links uh, <laughs> for this particular um, show. So in your future, and again, you don't have to get into detail on this um, by any means, but where do you see, if we could talk future, not just about you, but the field itself, uh, you know, I spend much of my day, in addition to my NHASED work with, with Keene State students. And of course, part of what I want to do is get them enthused about teaching. Some of them are 20 something or 20, 21 year olds. And yet I do know how hard it is out there for sure, because I do spend some time in schools. Are you bullish on the future of education, literacy specifically, but education in general? Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm concerned for sure. I'm seeing people leave the profession that is concerning, you know, we're, we're losing good people, but I still feel passionately that public education is like the bedrock of a functioning society. And, and I think we just need to, you know, keep fighting a good fight to try to get good people into the field and, and make it an attractable profession and a, and a respected profession as well, you know, so that kids going into college, I have a senior myself right now. So, you know, what's making kids want to go into education or not go into education. These are, you know, things that we need to look at for sure. Um, as far as my own kind of future, I'm in my doctorate work. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, still teaching and I'm looking at a lot of research and really kind of trying to identify, as they say in doctoral programs, the gap in the literature, mm -hmm. um, which for me is really that there's, you know, it's getting better, but there's that disconnect between the research and the practice. And, um, there, you know, there is starting to be more of that connection there, but even certain things we know about the brain, we're um, using certain teaching strategies that haven't actually been researched themselves then they make complete sense based on what we know about how the brain learns to read but we don't have a lot of research about what they look like and how they work in in practice so decodables are a big one and i get often get asked when's the right time to kick, take kids out of decodables and there's really no research about one surface certain age or progression of phonics skills or you know i can tell you different things to look at but there is no one certain time that I can tell a teacher that and that's hard for teachers right because they're trying to do the right thing and they don't know so I I think that the future of the field it really lies in you know more research about what these things we know about the brain are going to look like as strategies and implemented in classrooms well I wish you my friend the, the best of the rest of the school year as possible as we enter into a little <laughs> Our snowy period. It's actually a yep. really good time for learning. Yes. It's pretty productive. You put in the show notes here, not the show notes, but the prep notes, uh, Maya's quote, the full quote, do the best you can until you know better than when you know better, do better. Yeah. If you're um, ever feeling like down about things, just pull up a good Maya video on YouTube. It'll make you feel better. I had a chance to see her at an ASCD national conference once oh, wow. a number of years ago. And now yeah, she was, she was pretty amazing. Very inspirational. So, and so are you, Elizabeth. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for uh, for taking time. Well, thanks for having me. Looking forward to joining the NHASCD board and doing can some we... work with all of you as well. All right. And maybe you can co-host with me on a few of these from time yeah, to time. That'd good. be nice. Sounds good. 
Well, thanks. I do want to remind people as we uh, get near the end of the podcast that uh, Peter Lujadal is coming in again, November 21 and 22. It, it may be past that as you listen to this, but certainly this will drop uh, the 17th, I think, which is tomorrow, our time. I have some editing to do and getting that together, but he's going to be doing a two-day uh, webinar after school on the 21st and 22nd. If you'd like to sign up and as well as getting a discount, if you do both, uh, Peter's webinar in our K Math Conference in March. Just head to nhasc.org and and sign up. Don't forget the Krista McAuliffe Transforming Teaching and Tech Conference coming up November 27th through the 30th. And again, uh, more information, you can always email me at bill at nhasd.org as well. Our mission at NHASCD is to serve as a catalyst for conversation and action to inspire excellence in teaching, learning, and leading. You can find links to much of what we talked about on today's show in the show notes on our Spotify podcast page, accessible on the front page at nhasd.org or in any podcast player. I got to remind people we're on Apple, Google, Spotify, really any podcast player. We do social media every morning. I find the best I can in educational articles. You can find us on Twitter X, Facebook, Instagram, again, at NHASCD. Have I said that enough times? I think I have. <laughs> I'm Bill Carose, Executive Director for Liz Cannon. Again, thanks for being with us, Liz. We'll thanks. see you next time for NHASCD Spotlight. Take care, everybody. Mm -hmm.